On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who in his first week on the job began an investigation into Catholic clergy sexual abuse. The investigation unmasked a huge cover-up and identified 1,000 children who were victims, but found that there probably are thousands more, which prompted a wave of activism in Pennsylvania and across the country. We're also joined by Sean Doherty, who is a survivor of sexual clergy abuse and shares his story. And I just want to issue a trigger warning for anyone who might be affected by any sort of abuse. I'm Attorney General Josh Shapiro. I'm Sean Doherty. Sorry, not not sorry. sorry. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. are going to begin here with what appears to be the largest abuse scandal to shake the American Catholic Church yet. Peace be with you and with your spirit. An explosive report alleging a cover-up of Catholic priest sex abuses dating back decades. A grand jury in Pennsylvania just issued its report. It found evidence of more than 300 predator priests, all accused of sexually abusing more than 1,000 child victims. Brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sin. It detailed the accounts of more than 1,000 children, but said there are likely thousands more victims. And so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mystery. The numbers truly staggering, and all of that just from one state, Pennsylvania. It alleges that bishops and other church leaders covered up the crimes, often moving priests to other churches. The grand jury investigation goes back 70 years and identified predator priests in six Catholic dioceses across Pennsylvania. Most of these cases fall outside of Pennsylvania's statute of limitations. Priests were raping little boys and girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all for decades. So during your first weeks, Attorney General, as as the Pennsylvania Attorney General, the investigation into the Catholic clergy sexual abuse uh, sort of landed on your desk, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit about it, how it came to you and, and how quickly you decided that you needed to do something? Yeah, you know, Alyssa, when I ran for Attorney General in 2016, I had no idea uh, that this investigation was going on, largely because it was in the grand jury, which, you know, by law requires that it be secret. Mm. And after I took the oath of office in January of 2017, in, in my first week in office, uh, I was briefed on outstanding grand jury investigations, including this one. And it was in actually its very, very nascent early stages. There were, you know, maybe less than a handful of people in our office working on it. Uh, really did not have any sense of how big it ultimately would be, you know, how many lives would be touched, how extensive the cover-up would be, how many predator priests would be identified. And I was faced with a choice uh, from our agents and our lawyers, you know, do you want to continue this um, or do you want to maybe focus on other things? And not only did I tell them I wanted to continue it, I wanted to put the full force of our office behind it. And so we went from, you know, two, three, four people working on it to at its height, 150 people in my office working on this investigation. That's how important uh, I thought it was. So we acted immediately. We acted decisively. And we put the full force of the office behind this 
critically important investigation. Your dad was a pediatrician, and he would testify on behalf of, of the Commonwealth in child abuse cases when you were growing up. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, it was. He, he still is a pediatrician, and he's always on the side of kids and, and the Commonwealth. And he showed me that when I was a, a very young boy, um, that you know both children can be harmed by adults, which I know sounds crazy when I say that out loud. But when you're a little kid, you don't imagine that that could be the case, right? You don't imagine that an adult could hurt a child. And so I was exposed to that at a young age, uh, and I was determined to do something about it. Now, I'd be lying to you if I said I knew then I wanted to be the attorney general. Right. Um, I certainly did not, but I knew I wanted to do something to help kids. I actually, frankly, for a long time thought that I'd be a pediatrician like my dad mm. and use that as a way to help kids. But you know, unfortunately, you have to take organic chemistry if you want to be a, a doctor. And that was maybe not uh, the path for me. Yeah, law school sounded much more exciting, didn't it? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, I think as a parent, speaking as a parent right now, it's hard to really know and, and understand what you should be telling your children. Because, I mean, for me, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and I want them to be aware that things horrible things can happen, but you don't want to scare them. Tell me about what the process was like uncovering the numbers. Yeah, and, and let me just for your listeners give give a few of those um, points, right? We Please. unearthed 301 predator priests. We found that there were thousands of children who were victimized by these predator priests. And this and is we, just in Pennsylvania. Just in Pennsylvania in six dioceses. So I think that's really important to stress is that right. this is probably going on in your state right now. Right. And we'll, we'll speak more to that in terms of what other states are doing, I'm, I'm sure, in a bit. But we also unearthed really for the first time, uh, I think, law enforcement was able to show a systematic cover-up um, that stretched all the way to the Vatican, Alyssa. And there were documents and testimony that provided the proof of that cover-up. The church was incredibly sophisticated the way they covered this up and the way they went to great lengths to be shielded uh, from the arm of the law. Can you talk about just, that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so in our grand jury report, we not only found these horrific examples of abuse, but we showed how systematically the church covered up the abuse how they had a glossary of terms. And so instead of saying rape, they would say horseplay. They had a group of, quote, benevolent bishops all across the country where they could pass these predator priests onto some other jurisdiction so that they wouldn't be known there and they would be shielded from the laws here in Pennsylvania. Uh, they had all kinds of extensive relationships with law enforcement so that they could get law enforcement to look the other way. And Alyssa, you know, this isn't my word. In some ways, it's not even the words of those who testified truthfully under oath in our grand jury. This was contained in the church's own secret archives. And that is not my term, secret archives. That is the church's own term. It's literally a filing cabinet that sits in or around the bishop's office where they document all of this stuff. Jesus. And, you know, so... It, it is stunning to me, not just the abuse, but the extent to which the church covered it up. And I will tell you that 
in every single instance of a predator priest, in every single instance of uh, a, a bishop or a cardinal or someone else who tried to cover it up, we ran them all through what's called a statute of limitations test, really a test to determine whether or not criminal charges could be filed. And in all but two cases, we could not file charges because time had passed. And the reason time had passed and the statute of limitations expired is because the church in a concerted way pushed this back so far that uh, law enforcement couldn't press charges. They acted like the mob. They are an organized criminal enterprise. That is what we unearthed here in Pennsylvania. So when you first started investigating this, how many of these predator priests were you aware of? Like, you know, in the beginning, when it first landed on your desk? Not many. And and so I, I gave you the highlights, and um, but it was really throughout the year and a half long investigation, there wasn't sort of one aha moment where we realized everything at once. But there were moments throughout the investigation where we would realize, wow, this is way more extensive than we thought. To go from not many to 300 in a year and a half, I mean, I can't even imagine. Right. We just kept finding it everywhere. And what was stunning was for as diverse as Pennsylvania is, and and you know Pennsylvania well, we've got rural, urban, and suburban corridors. It's really different from a socioeconomic standpoint. It's different from a racial, um, you know, and, and, and religious background in, in different regions of our state. But the story was always the same, the story of abuse and cover-up. And so now, as we look across the country, since our report was released in August of 2018, 15 state attorneys general are investigating. The feds launched a probe, and I'm here to tell you that, uh, sadly, they're going to find the exact same things that we found in Pennsylvania because this abuse and this kind of cover-up was going on everywhere. Hundreds of priests have been publicly named in more than 35 dioceses, be it Chicago, Atlanta, Buffalo, or Las Cruces, New Mexico. Catholic leaders in Texas released the names of almost 300 priests accused of sexual abuse, 286 priests and others accused of sexually abusing children over nearly eight decades. This week, Pope Francis announced that he would accept the resignation of three bishops in the South American country of Chile. There were more developments today in the Catholic Church sex abuse scandals. The Diocese of Brooklyn, New York, has agreed to pay $27.5 million dollars to four men who were sexually abused as boys by their religion teacher. And the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., Cardinal Donald Worrell, is reportedly set to resign. A Pennsylvania grand jury report accused him of not doing enough to deal with pedophile priests when he headed the Pittsburgh Diocese. A website that tracks clergy abuse in all 50 states lists more than 5,000. Listen to that, 5,000 current or former priests who have been publicly accused. My abuser, when he took his collar off, he told me that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And you believed him, you're a child. And I believed him, yeah. The collar is still a trigger for me. In the days when he was in the flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And he was heard because of his reverence. You know, you just assume if they had to create their own vocabulary for what was going on, um, you know, obviously there was a a need not just uh, in a few cases, but this is something that 
they had been sitting on and cultivating. Yeah, and, and I would just say, you know, I, I like how you use the word vocabulary, right? It's not a word we use all the time, but it's critically important. I want to just sort of seize on that for a second. Please. Because when you look at, you know, sexual assault cases, particularly when you're in an institution, whether that institution is the church or or Hollywood or politics or, or business, and you being a courageous survivor who has spoken up, I, I know understand this, there has been a premium placed on protecting the powerful institution over the people who are in it historically. And there's an entire vocabulary that goes along with that that allows executives and politicians and others to try and sweep it under the rug, leaving right. the survivor you know, feeling lonely and feeling unable to share his or her truth. Well, we've turned that on its head here in Pennsylvania. The Cosby verdict turned it on its head. The Penn State University Sandusky trial turned it on its head. What's happening in Hollywood has turned it on its head. There is a reckoning going on in this country, and we need to use the words that aptly describe the abuse, the assault, the cover-up. Uh, and in forms like this, Alyssa, on your pod and, and in other forms, I think it's important that we speak truth and that we let people know what is really going on here. And that will give other institutions and other people the courage to come forward and do the right thing and look out for victims. And hold people that are abusing their power accountable. This is all about accountability. Exactly. And it's all about abuses of power. And I'm glad you said that also about vocabulary and went back to that because it speaks to a little bit of the pushback that we got when we started to use the hashtag believe survivors during the Kavanaugh hearing. And what people took that Were to you at mean, the Kavanaugh hearing? I didn't see you there. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was a standee of me. But what people took that as as meaning was believe survivors no matter what, even if there's no due process, right? And so to teach people, no, this isn't about, you know, just blindly believing people no matter what they say. This is about systemic silencing of survivors of sexual assault. And what we're saying is when we say believe survivors is let's turn that around. We have to start listening. We have to start believing survivors. And, you know, it's so amazing to me how even though we have progressed in so many ways, in this instance of reporting sexual assault or abuse or even harassment at the workplace, this is something that has never changed. People's reaction to this is always a cover-up, and it drives me nuts. It's what happened to me when I was sexually assaulted, and I went to the, you know, the superiors, and and they said to me, well, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to just, like, right. what do you want to do? Do you want to call the, like, putting it on me, putting the responsibility on me to figure out how I felt, what I wanted to do, when I was really just trying to say, believe me that this 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 happened. Please help me. And I am so grateful that we have Sean with us today to talk about his experience because, um, Sean, I, and I hate to put this responsibility on you, but not a lot of men feel comfortable coming forward talking about this. And it's going to take people like you that are willing to talk about their experience that are going to give other 
people the power to come forward. So what you're doing right now, you're almost, even though you're telling of your own pain, you're really, the responsibility that that you're under right now is is really uh, being a messenger, a messenger of what needs to happen, of what needs to take place, of what has happened in the past so that we can acknowledge it, hold those accountable, and move on from this scourge of chaos. So thank you, Sean, for being with us. I know it is not easy to relive any of this, but your story was part of this report. So I'd love for you to tell uh, my listeners a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Alyssa. I really appreciate this. Um, I uh, grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm one of nine children. Uh, to a very Irish Catholic uh, blue-collar family. My dad worked for uh, Bethlehem Steel for 33 years, um, and we grew up and lived a block from the school. Uh, I went to Catholic uh, school at St. Clement's Parish in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and Beginning in the fifth grade, when I was 10 years old, my priest, uh, who was also my religion teacher and my basketball coach, uh, began uh, sexually assaulting me and uh, classmates of mine, um, which started grooming, tickling, roughhousing, um, really, you know, looking back in hindsight as an adult, um, I guess getting me used to being handled by uh, a grown adult man. Um, And then uh, one day it it led to um, fondling uh, my genitals through my uh, clothes while I was permitted to sit on his lap in the the driver's seat of his car while we were driving down the road. I was allowed to steer the wheel. And while that was happening, he was uh, fondling my genitals. That um, became more aggressive uh, over time and escalated to uh, a one-time occurrence in a shower after a racquetball match. Uh, I was digitally penetrated uh, in my rectum uh, by this priest. And I can remember that day clearly because um, even though at that point I had been getting sexually assaulted regularly for almost three years, um, this was the first time that I was ever penetrated and uh, I just remember thinking, you know, you can almost um, you can almost excuse the other stuff or blow it off with accident, even though it happened hundreds of times over the course of three years. Uh, when somebody sticks their finger in your rectum, you can't just blow that off. So I didn't enjoy it. Uh, I shot him a very stern look. Uh, No words were spoken uh, at that time, but uh, that was it for me. He he stopped uh, sexually assaulting me on that day. Um, Nothing ever progressed more forward, but uh, um, I knew by that point what he was. At that point, I was thirteen. So before that, talk to me about what what's your earliest memory that you have of religion and the church. Sure. Uh, you know, I I mean, I can remember studying for my first Holy Communion in second grade. Uh, 
you know, we we had um, religion teachers in first grade uh, when Sister Frances Clare would come into our room. Everybody stood to attention. Good morning, Sister Frances Clare. How are you? And it, it was our entire childhood revolved around religion. Uh, it wasn't... Um, it really wasn't school first, then religion. It was religion first, then school second. Uh, you, you know, we were we were taught to obey the priests, the nuns, the Monsignor. I mean, you, you just don't question any of these. These are authority figures. Authority figures, sure. The representatives of God. Uh, you you are just uh, you are taught from a very young age in a in a very um, strict Catholic family that that these people are your path to heaven like the you're taught at a very young age that life on earth is just temporary uh, your your life on earth is is what you do to get into heaven for eternity so um, anything that the priest or nun um, would tell you to do, you have to do because that's your that's your ticket to heaven. So, uh, church and my childhood go hand in hand. I mean, I can remember my first church experiences almost as much as I can remember my first, you know, swing of a baseball bat. It, it it's just part of who we were. So, at what point did you finally tell someone? When I was twenty one years old, I entered the navy. And um, when you enter the Navy, you swear an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States from enemies both foreign and domestic. And if you take an oath honestly and you listen to the words that you are swearing to, um, when you're sexually assaulted as a child— and you're now a young adult, and you've just sworn an oath to protect people, uh, it it haunts you. Now, it, it had been on my mind to speak up for some time, but I just couldn't. But now I had sworn an oath to do that very thing. So I felt obligated by a sense of duty to speak up. And when I came home from boot camp, uh, I told my parents in 1991. When I was and what were people's reactions? It was uh, difficult for my parents to believe, uh, so much so that they didn't right away. Now, that sounds harsh, but in, my, in defense of my parents, I would say that they were groomed every bit as much as I was groomed. The community was groomed. The parishioners were groomed. Everybody was groomed to believe the priest and not the child. So when this began happening to me in the fifth grade, I, um, I didn't care for authority figures any longer. I didn't uh, care for school any longer. School was more of a social uh, aspect of my life than an educational aspect. So uh, it was just a place for me to have fun and uh, I was good at getting myself in the trouble, and I was also good at getting myself out of trouble. So I could uh, pretty much say anything that I thought whoever was uh, uh, my guardian, uh, I could talk myself out of it. So when I was 21 years old, uh, 
it was easier for my mother to believe that I was just making that up rather than it was easier for her to believe that the guy that she bowled with every Thursday night in the church bowling league was raping right. her son. Right. So um, that was hard. That was a hard time period in my life. I remember I got home from boot camp Christmas Eve in 1991, and I was angry at my mother for not believing me. And I trekked Father Koharchik, my abuser, to, down to the church and parish where he was, and I specifically remember sitting in my car or my dad's car um, in front of the rectory and I sat there for three hours I wanted to go and confront him so badly but several things were on my mind one I wasn't sure if I went in and confronted him if it got physical I didn't know if that I could stop Um, second uh, it was on my mind that I was now a sailor in the United States Navy And if I did something that was against the law, I could be in real trouble. But honestly, the the thing that got me to pull away from the rectory that night was it was Christmas, and uh, I thought of Father Karchik's mother and what her reaction would have been had I gone in. So uh, I chose to pull away. Now, that said, in hindsight, had I known in 1991 what he did to a friend of mine who is no longer with us and I can't speak about, uh, I'm afraid to say what I would have gone in and and what I would have done. Uh, where Where is he now? He owns a home seven minutes from me in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He lives uh, a handful of blocks away from the Garfield Middle School where children walk by his door every day. He's unregistered. He's never been charged with a crime. And he's free as a bird. Let me just jump in. I mean, it's a great example of having some states with weak laws, including Pennsylvania, where we couldn't charge him because so much time had had lapsed. And it's one of the reasons why we've been calling for the elimination of the statute of limitations so that we can bring charges against predator priests like Father Kaharchik, no matter when survivors come forth and, and share their truth, because you, you came forth much earlier than most. The average age of people coming forth is about 52, 53 years old. And maybe tell Alyssa about how you confronted Father Kaharchik not too long ago on, on national TV. I thought it was an incredibly powerful sure. moment. Um, part, part of what we were talking about before, just like you indicated, hashtag believe survivors, Uh, When I decided to come out publicly um, about my abuse, uh, I said that in my community and in my family and in my state, we're going to have to go really out of the way to really show that this is that this happened. Uh, I have to be able to convince my people in my hometown that I'm not lying, that this is honestly happening and I figured that I was one of nine children that they would say, oh, if it happened to a Doherty, it could happen to anybody, which is what happened. But even though my priest was called before the grand jury, and even though he admitted to it to the grand jury, that still wasn't enough for me. Uh, I, I really felt it important to confront him 
and I wanted to do it on camera. So I worked with Nikki Batiste at CBS and the CBS production team and a restaurant uh, that I'm friends with in my hometown to secretly record um, the priest. So my friend, a childhood friend who was also abused, Brian Sabo and I, uh, we wore uh, wires and we had hidden cameras in the restaurant and we convinced uh, the former priest to come and meet us and we were able to uh, sit down and have a 90-minute conversation with him to where he openly admitted and apologized for things that he did. And I can say that that, that was really powerful for me in that I got to confront the guy who abused me. I got to say the things that were uh, on my chest for decades. But more importantly to me, no one, absolutely no one, can now say that this didn't happen to me. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was wow. abused by Father George Koharchik, and he admitted to it on TV. So that whole Believe Survivors is incredible, and I applaud you for your efforts on that. But I know for sure now that I'm believed because of that tape. So we'll try to make this as least awkward as possible, I guess. Just that I'm certainly sorry for any harm I've caused and shame of everything that I did back then. I mean, you're not still active, are you? Oh, no. No, certainly not. And haven't been for long. You know, what was it about us? Is it more convenience because we lived close to the school? Or was there something else about Sean and I that made us a target? familiarity maybe i'm gonna tell you this i'm i'm angry with what you did right i i'm i'm angry but i have forgiven you a long 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 time ago for this right the the part that i cannot forgive is the cover i am that crushed me we, we were taught to oh there's a god there's i mean i tried to kill myself over this when i was 24 legit Sean, I'm sitting here, and the thing that's going through my mind is, where would I even begin if I were faced with my abusers? I don't even know. How did you find the strength to 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 do that, to sit across from that person and have a conversation? Um, f- fortunately for me, through this whole trauma-induced ordeal, uh, I've been fortunate that I'm part of a named grand jury report. I'm in the I'm a redacted name from the 2016 Altoona Johnstown grand jury, and we have, uh, thanks to the efforts of the attorney general and and his whole team, uh, I have those tools at my disposal now that I can be believed. So, having backup in that. The Attorney General of Pennsylvania backs up my story, uh, gives you the confidence that you need as a victim to to go that extra step and and to really uh, do my part as a victim. I mean, the, the Attorney Generals and the police and DAs can only go so far, but they need they need victim support as well. Uh, and and i just i just felt that for some reason 
you know, I, I survived a suicide attempt when I was 24. I always wondered why I survived that. Um, looking back in hindsight, I, I just, I just see this as a, as an incredible opportunity to right a horrible wrong and, and really try to, um, have it that other kids don't ever have to do this. So it, it was almost not how did I do it. It's just that I had to do it. It's just that, that this sinking feeling that I just have to get this done. So. I understand. I understand that feeling. And it's more of like realizing your uh, your calling almost. And I often feel like how can I not do it, right? Like there are certain things that are so hard and my thought process is, well, if I don't do it, I'm definitely not helping people. Exactly. You and know, I'm definitely not healing myself. Exactly. So how can I make the most of, of this and consider it an opportunity? But you do realize, Sean, that not many people have that outlook. And I'm so enchanted to even be talking to you right now to hear this because you're not – it's important for people to realize, I think, and, and especially right now with how Me Too evolved from the Harvey Weinstein case. And I think we spend so much focus on people that have uh, you know, some sort of name recognition that this happened to and – for me, this does not get fixed until we uncover every single abuse of power. And really, the most important aspect of that is the most vulnerable. Because th those are the people that don't have access to treatment or help or support. So I, I think it's so vital that we hear these stories from from people that are not in, you know, the limelight. And, and really, we need to shift the focus on those that are marginalized and also those that are marginalized within the conversation, like men being marginalized in the conversation of sexual abuse and assault. So I just think it's you're an incredible person. Well, thanks. But I, I, I really feel that I'm the fortunate one in this. You know, I'll tell you a really quick story after after the attorney general released his findings on August 14th, uh, I was privileged to be one of those victims on the stage. And now I'm very privileged to have the platform that, that I've been given, such as this podcast here, that I get to, to speak uh, to many people. And after uh, the media blitz from the grand jury report, um, you know, I, I own a restaurant in New York, and one, one afternoon I was at my restaurant, and I was there by myself, and the phone rang, and I don't know what made me pick it up. It's during a time that I wouldn't normally answer the phone. We were closed, but I answered the phone, and it was a 76-year-old woman from Brooklyn, New York, and she was sitting next to her 96-year-old mother, and it was a 45-minute conversation, and out of the 45 minutes, I think I spoke for a minute. They spoke about the mother's uh, abuse as a child from a nun uh, when she was a small child. Now, this, this woman was 96 years old. And when you're sitting in New York in your restaurant and you have two senior citizens bawling their eyes out Amazing. and just thanking you 
for going on television and telling your story that they are bonding over the fact that for the longest time, her mother, daughters, the children didn't believe, just thought mom was nuts. And until a couple years ago, they unearthed the papers that they need. So when, when, when you hear a, a 76-year-old woman and a 96-year-old struggling to get words out as they're really bawling their eyes out and struggling to get air into their system as they're thanking you for just coming out and telling your story, I mean, it'll change your life forever. And it'll, it will give you the biggest sense of purpose. And, and I'm just, I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Uh, this is healing me every much as much as it's healing everybody else. Let us all pray at this time in silence for these elect to be given a spirit of repentance, a sense of sin, and strength of will to live in true freedom as the children of God. A newly ordained priest, Father William Reinecke, came to our parish, and he sort of adopted our family. And he would say Mass in our house, and he would be over at our house for dinner three and four times. He went on vacation with us, and, and I loved him. And I wanted his attention. And he took that adoration, and he started abusing me as around the age of eight. And it went on probably for three or four years. He would literally abuse me in the basement of our house and then go up and have dinner with my parents. That these elect may be given the faith to acknowledge Christ as the resurrection and the life. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. So I had three priests, two priests and a brother, who pursued me. Uh, I guess the phrase is groomed me and uh, touch me, hug me. That they may be freed from sin and grow in the holiness that leads to eternal life. Let us pray to the Lord. Digital penetration, masturbation, oral copulation, uh, fondling, taking nude pictures of me. That they may be filled with the hope of the life-giving spirit and prepare themselves thoroughly for their birth to new life. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayers. He would tell me things like, you know, you're so special that God has allowed me to be ordained so that I could teach you what pure love is. That the Eucharistic food which they are soon to receive may make them one with Christ, the source of life and of resurrection. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. He pulled out a condom and um, he basically raped me. And I just wanted to flush myself down the toilet because... I thought that's where I belonged. Jesus wept because he saw this coming. He knew their lack of faith, but also out of compassion for all of those who would suffer this impending disaster. Okay, so I am going to hand the microphone off to you and say, uh, ask you the simple question of use the next two minutes to say anything that you'd like to abuse victims helping them, inspiring them to find their voice. I turn it over to you. I'd say I know exactly how you feel. I know all of your hesitations. I get that you're worried about what your neighbors will say, what your boss will say, what your fellow employees will say, what your relatives will say. Um, 
I get all of that. I was exactly where you were, but I can tell you that it is the most relieving feeling that you can imagine. It's not an easy subject to bridge, but once you bridge it, the words just flow and they flow freely and you will feel a weight lifted off of your shoulders like you have never felt in your life. And I can honestly say that I really, truly don't receive pushback. The, the time is now that people believe you. They listen to you. Um, all of the things that you're worried about, although real as they are, are really, um, I think, a de- defense mechanism within yourself to just keep you safe. But know that there, you are nowhere near alone. Nowhere near alone. Know that sexual abusers do not discriminate. They don't, they don't care about race, gender, wealth, anything. They, you were not targeted for any specific reason, rhyme. You didn't do anything wrong. It isn't your fault. And there is plenty, and I mean plenty, of help out there for you when you're ready. Um, Find a support group. Find a friend. Find a family member. Practice saying it out loud to yourself in a room. Just start saying it out loud. It gets easier every time. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, Attorney General Shapiro, what, what do you feel when, when you hear that? Well, survivors like Sean and the literally hundreds that I've met and probably more than a thousand that I've had interactions with, um, you know, in, in some form or fashion, they fuel me. Um, they, they push me to make sure that, um, all of the abuse is unearthed, the cover-up exposed, and that survivors have their opportunity to speak their truth. Are these and cover-ups ongoing? Do you think this is something of the past, or is this, is this still happening every day? This is not something of the past. If you look in our grand jury report, there were a number of individuals named uh, who were part of the cover-up, probably the most famous one being Cardinal Whirl. Uh, also, a, a bishop from Pittsburgh and a bishop from Allentown who had a hand in the cover-up. They are all active today, uh, notwithstanding the Pope's admonition of Cardinal Worrell and promise that he would be retired. He's still in that position of power in oh. Washington, D.C. So the idea that this is something of the past, and I've heard uh, folks and some folks associated with the church say that, that this is all old news. We've changed. Many people involved in the cover-up are still in positions of power. And if you look at the work that's being done now by district attorneys and attorneys general and and others, there was just a predator priest charged in Philadelphia a few days ago. There was a predator priest charged in New Jersey uh, a few weeks ago. And you will see there will be more uh, in the coming days and weeks and months and years, sadly. This is not something of the past. Here's how the church can make this a thing of the past, if they do a few things. Number one, listen to survivors. 
and show that you really care about them. Two, uh, involve law enforcement in your processes. Um, In what other institution do we allow that institution to be shielded from the reach of the law and let them handle these things by themselves? We wouldn't tolerate that in any company or university or Hollywood production firm or what have you. Um, you got to involve law enforcement um, in this process. Third, I would say the church needs to read the grand jury report and follow the patterns because these patterns that existed through dioceses in Pennsylvania exist everywhere. They should study them and they should recognize them. And finally, uh, if they're really serious about reform, they should turn over their secret archives. Remember, Lisa, that's the filing cabinet that sits in every bishop's office that documents the abuse and the cover-up. It shouldn't take a grand jury subpoena or a search warrant uh, to turn that over. They should turn it over now and adopt, finally, adopt a zero-tolerance policy. Yes. If the church did those things, then maybe I could report to you that this is a thing of the past. But until they do that, uh, you know, sadly, um, you know, that this culture will continue. And then, of course, there's got to be a robust discussion, uh, which I'm not fit to participate in. It's one that is between parishioners and the bishops and cardinals and others about the future of their church and how to fill the pews again. I mean, that's really not my role as the chief prosecutor in Pennsylvania, but that is a, another conversation that I think needs to take place. And, and I will tell you, the parishioners I hear from, and there is not a day that goes by where I don't have a parishioner come over to me and either say thank you or tell me their story of abuse, mm. they want to see change. They are the ones who are, you know, who love their faith as they should, but certainly do not love the leadership of their faith today. And that is something that uh, I think needs to needs to be addressed. And all of those things together will help make this a thing of the past. But right now, it is and not a thing of the past. What can we do about these statutes of limitations? Well, 39 states have already done away with the criminal statute of limitations. And so we need that to pass here in Pennsylvania as well. And one thing we need in every state in the union is uh, what Sean and others call a window to justice, which basically allows survivors to confront their abusers in civil court and sue them in order to get help paying for the things that they need uh, that are the effects, the lifetime effects of abuse, things like drug and alcohol uh, counseling and mental health services and other things that go along with abuse survivors. Understand, and and you know this better than anyone, it's not as though when the abuse stops that the, the pain stops. No, it um, certainly isn't. And there is, I've never, conf- I've never ever had an abuse survivor come to me and say, I want money. What they have said to me, though, is I need help. I need counseling. I need services. And they shouldn't be forced to pay for that out of their own pocket. The church ought to pay for that. And so we need a window to justice in every state in the union. Do you have any real specific advice for other state leaders? I do. Maybe and dealing I- with this issue? I do have specific advice, and I, I've spoken over 45 attorneys general. I've spoken to the attorney general of the United States. I've spoken to other uh, law enforcement officials. We have worked with them to fashion their search warrants in ways that will allow them to capture the documents they need. 
We've talked to them about how we conducted our grand jury investigations so that they can have a roadmap to the kinds of testimony and, and other information that's important to gather. Uh, we've talked to them about the limitations of statutes that make it harder to prosecute these predator priests and those who enabled the cover-up. And so we stand ready and willing and very able to assist law enforcement anywhere uh, in this process. And, and we have. Uh, we've assisted DAs. We've assisted attorneys general. And as I said, uh, we've spoken directly to leaders in the Department of Justice. Sean, are you hopeful? Uh, sure, I'm hopeful, but more uh, determined, actually. Uh, uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, as the attorney general just said, 45 other attorney generals are in contact now. Um, I mentioned New York earlier. They passed the Child Victims Act with a window just uh, a few weeks ago. So although I understand the fight that is ahead of us, um, I am hopeful um, and determined and confident that um, the survivors and this issue aren't going to be talked down ever again. Um, the momentum and the groundswell is just getting bigger and bigger, and uh, states are just going to start to drop one after another. Uh, and I'm confident that in my lifetime, uh, we will still see real uh, legislative changes uh, in the states moving forward. Is this about theology? Is this about morality? Is this about ecclesiology? No, this is about power. As Pennsylvania's Attorney General released this bombshell grand jury report, dozens of people who reported sexual abuse at the hands of priests wiped away tears, saying they finally feel validated. This grand jury report is justice. History hates an autocrat. It's true. When we look through the lens of world events and those we see as heroes and those we see as villains, the bad guys are always those who wielded power for power's sake. Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Genghis Khan, Henry VIII, Donald Trump. None of these people inspire feelings of warmth or love or memories of strong leaders ruling wisely. Beyond these individuals are the institutions which perpetuate the evils of those in charge. Institutions like those inside the Catholic Church, which allowed so much abuse to go on for so long. Institutions which corrupt and betray their principles and their members in order to perpetuate evil. These men and these organizations are remembered not for leadership, but for their immense and disastrous failings. They are the examples we use to demonstrate what those in power must never become. Our heroes, on the other hand, are those who stood up against these powerful evildoers and others like them. Those who saw the mighty committing injustices and who acted against them. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Volslav Havel, Gandhi, Sitting Bull and Geronimo, the Tiananmen Square students, Robin Hood. 
There is perhaps nothing that defines a free society more than the ability to speak and act against evils committed by those in positions of authority and the institutions they lead. It has been, at least in the ideals of its founding, if not always in its execution, the fundamental principle of Americanism. We can lead a revolution at the ballot box every few years, and in the interim, we can tell those in power that we are coming to tear them down. The best of our leaders welcomed this. They encouraged it even, using the threat of electoral overthrow as inspiration to embody the best of our democracy. The worst of our leaders do the opposite. They close polling places in districts populated by their opponents. They gerrymander congressional districts to weaken those who would wrest the grip of power from their sweaty palms. They remove transparency from the voting process, and they do everything they can to suppress the free press. They are cowards, and their cowardice makes them weak. In this weakness, they abuse their power. We live in a time which demands heroism of us. We live in a moment which will be defined by its insistence that power for power's sake must be dismantled and cast into the garbage bin of history. We live in a time when our leaders need to be loudly reminded of the revolutionary idea that power flows from the people and not to the people. When I look around this country, that is what I see. We are answering the great calling of our times. I see Josh Shapiro, who took down powerful and abusive priests who used their positions in the most heinous of ways. I see the Parkland students and other survivors of gun violence who are shattering the corrupt and evil NRA leadership. I see the millions of women who stood up and said no over and over again to their abusers. I see Christine Ford, who told her story at great personal detriment because she could not abide another man with an evil history on the Supreme Court. I see a woman of color shouting down the police, pointing guns at her and an unarmed black man on the street because he kind of looked like someone for whom they might have been searching for. Every single place I look, I see heroes. The thing about these champions is that they won't win every single fight. Kavanaugh, he's still in the Supreme Court. Trump is still in office. The GOP is still shutting down polling places in majority black precincts, and AR-15s are still shooting up our schools and our workplaces. But the victory lies in the actions themselves. Their bravery will stand the test of history. One day soon, we look back from a better time and whisper the names of those who stood up to evil for the changes they inspired. That day is coming. History is calling. In about 500 days, the next revolution happens at ballot boxes around this nation. Keep answering the call, America. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windage. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.